How many of you, show of hands, this may predate you, but in 1986, there was a movie that came out called Hoosiers. Anybody ever saw it? Um, I am not a huge sports fan, but I do love a good story about the underdog. Anybody love stories about the underdog? That's why most people last night were probably rooting for Conor McGregor, although we knew he probably didn't have a chance, but he did last a few good rounds. Anyway, I, anybody, like, anybody say it for that fight last night? Anybody? All right, well, that guy just made $100 million off of all of you, um, including myself. But Hoosiers is about this basketball team from the backwoods of Indiana that make it to the state championship. And uh, I remember seeing this movie, and when this team from, like, Crowley, Louisiana, that's what it was like, from Crowley, Louisiana, and they arrive in a city almost like New York City. And they get into this arena, this basketball team from the backwoods of Indiana. They walk into this arena, and they see this huge arena. All these seats, all these seats that are going to be filled, packed out. And all of a sudden, they become extremely intimidated by this arena. And there's this scene in the movie that I think is so brilliant. The coach brings the team, and he says, y'all walk with me brings a team, and he pulls out a measuring tape, and he begins to measure the basketball court. And he measures the basketball court, and he says, hey guys, the court is the same size as the court that we play on every single day of our life. He begins to measure the actual rim. He says, look, it's a standard rim. It's 10 feet. The free flow line is only 15 feet. The court is not changing at all. He said, the only thing that is different is the arena. The arena is bigger, but the basics of playing basketball are still the same. As long as y'all can continue the basics, the court is the same size, the arena is just different. And I tell that story because this is what the children of Israel are about to walk into when we open up in Joshua chapter 1. They have been um, wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Okay, And they're about to enter into the land that God has promised them. And they're about to walk into this new land that they have been longing for, that they have been dreaming for, that God has promised them. And they're about to walk into it, but right in their way is this city called Jericho. They have to fight this huge city in order to attain this land. And all of a sudden, everybody gets intimidated. And you're going to see God remind everybody, saying, hey, hold on. He takes out the measuring tape and he just says, hey, listen, the basics are the same. Just keep trusting me. Just keep praying. Just keep listening to me. Just keep leaning on me. And I feel that's where some of us are at today. We're walking in, and this is where we are as a church, we're walking into a completely different arena going, oh my gosh, this is intimidating. We've got buildings to buy, we've got rooms to move, we've got dream team leaders to raise up and leaders to raise up. We've got all these things to do, and the thing that I can't help but think about, and the thing that God is just constantly reminding me of is he's saying, Zach, the basics are the same. The basics are the same. Just keep pursuing me. Just keep praying, just keep fighting, just keep trusting me. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Joshua chapter 1. So here we are, Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read verse 1 through 2. Let me give you a little bit of context before I read this. Moses, the man who has led the children of Israel for over 40 years, has just died. Okay, and and we'll read it in a moment, but Moses has just died, and Joshua is now their new leader. So this is where we pick it up. 
It says, after the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun. That's actually his last name, so it's not like a reference of anything. But it says, Moses is assistant. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land that I am going to give them. Now, let me back up a little bit, give you a little bit of context of some things that have been going on. Um, Joshua was one of the 12 spies that Moses had actually sent into the promised land. He said, hey, before we go fight the, the city of Jericho, before we take the land that God has promised us, he, he got together 12 spies and he said, y'all go check out the land, see what we're going to have to do. What kind of war are we going to have to fight? What kind of battles are we going to have to fight? Well, 12 men go into this land and only two come back and say, listen, the giant's hands are bigger than our heads. They're massive. They, they talk about the grapes. They're like the size of basketballs. But only Joshua and Caleb come back and they say, hey, listen, um, they may be big, but our God is bigger. We can, we can win this fight. We can, we can do this. Well, the other 10 come back and say, listen, the, the giants are massive. They're three times our size. Um, they're going to mutilate us. It's not even worth it. Let's just go find a completely different land. You don't hear anything else about the ten. One, because they're cowards, and the Bible doesn't really highlight cowards too much. You don't remember them. And the other reason is because they had strange names like Shofat. <laughs> that was literally one of their names. Like, parents, please do not name your child Shofat. Um, Shofat is going to prom by himself. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so we don't remember them. So two of them come back, and Joshua is one of the men who is just emboldened with this sense of, man, God's been with us for 40 years. Why would he not be with us now? So Joshua 1, picking up in verse 3, and this is God speaking. He says, I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set your foot, you will be on land I have given you. Now what? This is important. It says, no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. Why? Because is he trying to tell Joshua nobody will be able to stand against you because you're bold, because you're awesome, because you're courageous? No, watch what he says. For I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you and I will not abandon you. Let me just pause here for a moment because I don't know if we realize the significance of what we're actually reading because some of us have been told to just search deep down inside and just trust the confidence that we have in ourselves, right? You've been told by your parents, you've been told by teachers, you've been told by friends in the media that you're awesome, you're special, you're one of a kind, you're a snowflake, you're a rainbow, you're a skittle, you're irreplaceable. Just trust your heart, right? You, you just follow your confidence. But the truth is, we learn throughout the scriptures that we should not place any confidence in ourselves. And so what God is reminding Joshua is saying, hey, listen, if you just continue to follow the basics by meaning this, just continue to trust me. Just continue to follow me. Just continue to walk with me and I'll lead you. Because the truth is, we're not really special on our own because we see this in the text, that Moses dies. Don't miss the significance of this. The leader, Moses, who has led the children of Israel for so long, he dies and God just goes, next. Next, Joshua, you're up to bat. 
Like, I find that amazing, who Moses, who has literally led the people out of Egypt, they have seen the Red Sea split, they have crossed, they have literally seen manna fall from heaven and water spurt out of rocks, this incredible leader. And when you read it in the Old Testament, it says, Moses is dead, Joshua, you're up. There is no, there's no, you don't read of a funeral, you don't read of a mourning time, you don't read of any of that. God just goes, all right, Joshua, you're up. Why does he do that? He's wanting us to realize that confidence does not come from looking inside yourself. It comes from looking at the one standing beside you. And listen, there's going to be times in your life, personally, when you're going to walk through certain seasons, when you walk into the arena, just like the movie Hoosiers, and go, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? This is so overwhelming. I don't know what to do, and God is just wanting to subtly remind us just the basics. Stick with the basics. Just follow me. Keep pursuing me. Joshua 1.7, this is God speaking again. It says, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey. Listen, this is important. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be able to be successful in everything that you do. So I want you to notice, God's telling Joshua, don't trust in your own confidence. Don't deviate from the left. Don't go to the right. Just continue to pursue me. Just continue the basics. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy to obey when the path is clear to understand, isn't it? It's, a, it's easy to obey God when God has just made the vision clear of where you're supposed to go and what you're supposed to do. Now, it's difficult to obey when you don't see what's ahead of you, right? When, 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 God is just, when you feel like God is just blindly leading you. I don't know about you, but when I obey God, I want to see results. Anybody in here? Like, okay, God, I'll follow you, but I need to see some progress here. It's kind of like working out. Like, I'll go to the gym, but I want to be ripped when I leave. You know what I mean? I, I've always had that fan. I'm going to just go here one, two, three days, and I'm going to walk out. Like, I'm going to be huge. Conor McGregor will have nothing on me after I leave this. <laughs> but if you turn to Joshua 5, you'll see what I'm talking about. And, and let me give you some context real quick. So Joshua, remember, Moses is dead, and he's got his first challenge as the leader, okay? They've got this city that stands in front of them. He's seen it. He was one of the 12 despised. They've got this city that stands in front of him, and they have got to conquer this city in order to take over the land that God has promised them. Now, the problem is this. Jericho, at the time, is the most fortified city in the world, Its walls were so thick, archaeologists actually tell us that you could ride two chariots across them. There's an outer wall, and then there's an inner wall. So there's actually two walls going on here. And the scene in Joshua 5 that we're about to read takes place on the eve of that battle. So all these men, Joshua is gathering all of his soldiers, and he's saying, okay, God has promised us this land. We're going to take it over. And um, we're going to fight Jericho. It's the most fortified city in the world. Their soldiers are three, four times bigger than us. Um, but we're going to do it. So imagine this. You're laying down at night. 
the eve before the battle, you're waiting on God to give you some kind of strategy, some kind of plan. Do you think that you would maybe sleep that night? Probably not. So a few chapters before we see Joshua, there's this scene where he knows that war is imminent. He knows men are going to die. He knows that this is his first chance to lead the people, for people to actually put their trust in Joshua that, okay, this guy can actually lead. He knows what he's doing. So we see in the text in about chapter 4 that he gets up in the middle of the night and he goes on a walk. It's late at night. He's probably out praying and he's walking around and he's seeking the Lord. He's probably saying, God, like, I'm here. I'm waiting for a plan. I don't have any instructions yet and the battle is tomorrow. And all of a sudden, this is where we pick it up in Joshua 5.13. When Joshua was by Jericho. Now, the way that this actual text was written in the Hebrew language, it indicates that Joshua had snuck out of the camp. And he's not just by Jericho. It's the text, if you read it, he's actually standing right up against the wall. He can put his hand on the wall. That's how close he is to this city. He looked up. Now, watch this. very interesting. It's the middle of the night. He looked up as he's staring at the wall, and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in his hand. How many, like, at that point, you faint, you know, like, faint. Joshua went up to him, and listen, this dude was, he's hardcore. Joshua went up to him and demanded, are you friend or foe? And the man replies, neither one, he replied, no. I am the commander of the Lord's army. So let's, let's talk about this, because I don't want you to miss the significance of this. First, we can recognize that, that Joshua is a man's man in this moment, right? I don't know about you, but if I was just out walking, praying, and I put my hand on the wall of Jericho, and I turn around, and there is this nine-foot dude standing right over me with his sword drawn, I'm like, I'm a lesser man than Joshua. I ain't going, you friend or foe? I'm like, hey, yo, what's the... (laughs) I am running, right? But Joshua goes right up to him and he challenges him. Friend or foe? So what do we learn about Joshua in this moment? We learn that he was the real Chuck Norris in this moment is what we learn. No, when he says, are you friend or foe? And the answer that he gets is just no. But I find it interesting because it's not a yes or no question. He just says, no, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. The commander makes it clear that Joshua is asking the wrong question. The commander of the Lord's army is saying, I'm not coming as friend. I'm not coming as foe. I'm coming to command your army. The army that you're preparing, that you're getting ready to battle, that's my army and I'm coming to command them. And we see this in Joshua 5.14. It says, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So let me ask you a question. Who is Joshua standing in front of? Who is he standing in front of? Some of us, when we first read it, we may think, well, it's an angel, right? Actually, it can't be an angel because um, angels would never allow you, allow you to worship them. We actually see this in Revelation 22, 9, um, when John encounters an angel and he falls down to worship an angel. And the angel actually gets upset and he says this, what are you doing? 
He says, I am a creature just like you. Don't worship me, worship God. So this is what theologians would call a Christophany, which means simply this. An Old Testament pre-nativity appearance of God in human form. In plain language, this is what it is. It's Jesus in human form for the first time in the Old Testament that we read about. And all of a sudden, Joshua realizes it. He realizes, I am standing before Jesus in this moment. And he is saying, I am the commander of this army. Are you ready for your instructions? Ultimately, Jesus in this moment, I, want, I don't want you to miss this, he demands surrender. He demands surrender. Hey, worship me. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground right now. He demands surrender. He demands, he says, I'm not here to just um, be your friend. I'm not here to fight alongside of you. I'm actually here to fight the battle. He says, I'm the commander of the army. See, this is not a battle that Joshua is going to fight for Jesus, with Jesus. This is a battle Jesus is going to fight for Joshua and his soldiers. We skip this part in the text, but a few days before the battle, God told Joshua to circumcise every man. Now, why would God tell Joshua to circumcise all of his soldiers the night before war? How many of you guys know you wouldn't be moving around the same? <laughs> like, it's not, it's not a smart tactical decision, right? I mean, you're healing up the most sensitive part of your body, and a dude's cutting on it. <laughs> and now you've got to go to war and put on some armor, right? It doesn't make any sense. But I don't want you to miss this. Why would God do this? Why would he say the night before the war, I want you to be in the most vulnerable position that you can be? He would do it because he wants to show Joshua and his people that their safety and victory did not belong to them. This was God's battle and not theirs. This was God's battle and not theirs. So Joshua 6, 1 through 2 says, Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go in or out. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all of its strong warriors. Just for sake of time, we're not going to read it, so let me just explain to you what's going on. Then God proceeds to give Joshua the instructions. He goes, all right, you ready to fight? All right, I'm ready. God, give me the instructions. Are we going to attack from the north? Do you want us to come in from the south? You know, do you want us to come in stealth? What do you want us to do? How are we going to fight this battle? And God's like, all right, you ready? Let me give you the instructions. Now remember, Joshua and his soldiers, they're amped up. They're ready for battle, okay? They got their armor on. They are ready to go to town. They're ready to cut some people. And here's the Lord's instructions. He says, take the ark, which represents the presence of God, and march around the city with it in silence. Once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, march around the city seven times, Shout and blow your trumpets. After you have done all that, God says, I'll take care of the rest. Now, can you imagine for a moment, you've got all your mighty men, they're sitting in a tent somewhere, waiting for the leader, Joshua, to come back and give them some instructions. 
So this dude walks back from meeting with the Lord, and all of his guys are like, all right, what are we going to do? He's like, um, so <laughs> we're going to march <laughs> around the city, and we're going to be quiet, and we're just going to put the ark. God told me to just like put the ark in front of us, and we're going to march behind it. And, uh, and then on the seventh day, we're going to march around it seven times, and we're going to blow these ram's horns, and we're going to shout, and then God told me that the walls are just going to crash down. Imagine how hard that would be to deliver that news in that moment. But I don't want you to lose how crazy this moment is. Because imagine for a second if this happened in a football game. All right? So the coach comes to the offense and he says, hey, listen, don't run the play. Just um, the way we're going to beat these guys, just hold hands and we're going to sing away in a manger. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically the equivalence, right? Imagine the trust that you had to have on your God. All right, guys, we're just going to sing, we're going to march, and God just said he's going to take care of the rest. And that's what we're going to do. This had to be hard for Joshua, being his first time of showing some form of leadership. But remember, God wants to prove that victory is not in our ability, but in our obedience and commitment to be faithful. Listen, you may be walking into a new arena of your life, but the basics don't change. Obedience to God never changes. Faithfulness to God never changes. The arena may, be, may get bigger, but the basics of keep walking, keep fighting, keep praying, keep diving into community never changes. And oftentimes we walk into the seasons of life and go, oh my God, I need a bigger part of Jesus. I don't know if you know this, you either have all of Jesus or none of Jesus, not a piece of him at certain times. Jesus is saying, listen, just keep trusting me. I'm the same God that set you free from slavery. I'm the same God that opened up the Red Sea when you thought the, the Egyptian army was going to annihilate you and you were going to drown in the sea. I split the sea apart. I caused miraculous things to happen. When you were wandering around in the desert because you were complaining, I was faithful to send food from heaven. And when you were thirsty, I told Moses to take his staff and just go strike a rock and water came out of it. So what God is saying, he's saying just... Tap into the basics, guys. This is, this is the Red Sea all over again. This is me setting you free from slavery all over again. I'm just going to do the same in Jericho. But I find it funny as Christians, when we tap in to new arenas of our life, all of a sudden we have amnesia, right? God has left me. <laughs> Man, we, we tap into that difficult financial area. We tap into a difficult marriage. We tap into loss or grief or whatever. And we say, God, he's gone. And we fail to forget all the other times that he's been so faithful for us. And when we were obedient, that he continued to provide and he continues to be the same God. Says, I'm the God that sent the food. I'm the God that sent the water. And Joshua 6, we, we pick it up and God is continuing to give instructions. He said, do not take He's talking about when the walls fall down. He says, Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, and iron is sacred to the Lord, and it must be brought into the treasury. Now this verse 
is important. So if you've got a phone or you're reading it on a piece of paper, just highlight it. We're going to come back to it, okay? Pick it back up in verse 20. It says, when the people heard the sound, this is the seventh day happening, okay? They have, they have spent six days walking around. It says, when the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed. The Israelites charged straight into the town, captured it. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords. Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, gold, donkeys. Now watch this. So they come in. They've had seven days of walking around this city. And finally on the seventh day, they blow their trumpets. They blow their ram's horns. They shout at the top of their lungs. And they see the walls completely crumble down. And remember what I said earlier. When God said, listen, when you go in and you defeat them, kill everything. And don't take any, nothing for yourself. Any of the precious metals and golds, that goes into God's house. Don't keep anything for yourself. There was, only, there was one, we didn't have time to read it, but there's one family in there that does get spared. That's Rahab, and you can read about her later. She was actually a prostitute, so that, that throws a whole other context in it. You see the grace and mercy of God in this crazy Situation. So her and her family are the only ones that are spared, and God commands them to kill everything. Don't touch anything. But in verse, se- I mean, in chapter seven, verse one, it says, "But Israel violated the instructions and the things set apart for the Lord, and a name and a man named Achan had stolen some of these dedicated things. So the Lord was very angry with the Israelites." Now, I want you to notice in this moment, Joshua is completely unaware that Achan has stolen some of the precious metals and gold. So they're about to, they've conquered Jericho. Now they've got another city to conquer. They've got to go to another battle. And so Joshua sends out some spies and his spies come back and they say, hey, listen, there's not many of them. Send about two or 3,000 men. We can, we can overtake this city without little effort. So Joshua sends about two, 3,000 men and we read. It says, Joshua sent spies from Jericho to Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai, for the people there are few. So about three thousand men went up, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So this, in a nutshell, this is what happened. Joshua sends two or three thousand men to go defeat Ai, and Ai completely destroys God's people. Like, they throw down on the children of Israel. Joshua comes back, and, he's, and one of his commanders comes back to Joshua, and he says, listen, we just got our butts handed to us. They destroyed us. And all of a sudden, Joshua's going, oh my gosh, God has left us. I mean, he's, he's walked us through the Red Sea. He's, he's brought us through the desert. He told us exactly what to do in, in Jericho, and he's been faithful. And now we go and we fight this tiny little battle, and we get our butts handed to us. Why? It says, Joshua's men were defeated, watch this, because the presence of the Lord had left them. Because the presence of the Lord left them. Why did it leave them? One man decided, hey, nobody's looking. It's not going to hurt anybody. I'm going to take some gold for myself. Nobody's ever going to know. I'll be fine. It says, in that moment, the presence of the Lord leaves them. Now, I want you to notice in um, chapter 7, 1, God describes what Achan did as he broke faith. He broke faith. So, so let me put it to you like this. In that moment, Achan said, 
God, I know you've provided for me in the past, but right now in this moment, I'm really struggling and I need to take matters into my own hands. How many, how many times do we do this? All the time, right? God, I mean, come on. I need to show up now. Like yesterday, I'm struggling. I'm hurting. I'm broke. I don't know what I'm going to do. And we just jump and we say, okay, God, you know what? You're not, you're not working fast enough. I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. Think about that for a minute. It looks like Achan just got a little bit greedy for a moment. So why would God punish them so greatly? One, God says that he broke faith in God. He quit depending on God to meet his needs and fill his life with meaning and happiness. He took matters into his own hands. In that moment, he literally says to God, I don't trust you to provide for me like you always have. Because life seems hard right now in this moment. So in this moment, I need to do what I need to do. So here's what I want to do quickly. There's three basic postures that we learn out of this story. Three basic things that we're going to learn that we have got to continue to do if God is going to bring us to new arenas. When we step into the new arena of life and it terrifies us and it shocks us and we don't know what to do. These are foundational things that should never change. Number one, this is truly a matter of life and death in the kingdom of the Lord. Number one, you have to surrender. You have to surrender. When Jesus visits Joshua in chapter 5, he makes it clear that he's not here to assist, he's here to command. I'm not here to just give you some instructions and fight alongside you. I am here to run the show. I'm commanding this army. I'm fighting this battle. And listen, how you see God and how it relates to your life is so important because most of us view God as someone who is there just to help us through life. He's just someone who influences us, who guides us, who cares for us, who takes care of us in hard times. You see this all the time at award shows, right? You see this all the time at the music shows. God, thank you for just giving me this award, you know, for helping me write this horribly filthy song. Like, God didn't help you write that song, (laughs) right? Like, God's not just there to, like, assist you and be there in the moment and just let me help you through. He says, listen, I'm here, I'm here to control. I'm here to command. I demand surrender. The truth is, he came as Lord Jesus And you can't have one or the other. It's both. It'd be like me like this. Let me explain it like this. It'd be like you invite me over to your house. I knock on the door. You open the door and you say, hey, listen, um, Zach can come in, but McCann has to stay out. (laughs) I'd be like, I don't even know how to answer that question, right? I don't even know how to reply to that because the truth is I'm all Zach and I'm all McCann, right? I'm both. It's just who I am. And at the same time, this is what Jesus is saying. You either take all of me or nothing at all. It's either complete surrender or nothing at all. You can't divide Jesus up like he's a salad bar. (laughs) Meaning I I like this part about him, but I don't like this part. So I like this part of the Bible. I want to read this part. And this is the part that kind of shapes me. And, you know, it really fits my personality. It fits kind of who I am. And and this part of the scripture is going to be everything that I follow. But this part offends me, and I don't really like this part. So I'm not going to really follow that part. He's saying, no. Everything or nothing. Everything or nothing. I don't know if you know this or not, but the greatest threat to true, authentic faith in your life is religious activity. 
The greatest threat to an authentic relationship with Jesus is religious activity. Because religious activity is always paired with partial obedience, not full obedience. Meaning, I want to look right before others, but I don't want to completely submit my heart to Jesus. I want to put on a show like I've got everything together, and this is what you see in Achan. (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm just going to continue to be in the camp, but man, I'm going to sneak some for myself, and hopefully nobody notices. Now the truth is, in that moment, it's not like Achan just said, hey, I quit believing in God. The truth is, he probably just had a weak moment. That gold looks really shiny. (laughs) But he just broke faith in God. He felt like he needed to take control of some areas that he need. Listen to this. He felt like he needed to guarantee his own happiness in that moment. He probably said to himself, how's this going to hurt anybody? Let me ask you a question. How often do we justify our lack of obedience with that excuse? Who's this going to hurt? Or, man, God will just forgive me, and I'll just get over it, right? What are the areas in your life that you're making an excuse for? What are the areas in your life that is keeping you from going into the full promise of what God has for you? Like, God wants to take you to the promised land, but there is one thing over and over and over in your life where you just, you're like Achan, you say, God, you can have everything, but just not this one piece, because if I open about this, it's just, it's just going to be too painful. It's just going to hurt. What is that one thing? It might be a habit. Maybe it's how you approach relationships. Man, I see this over and over and over in dating relationships. In married couples. They want to serve Jesus, but they're unwilling to submit their relationship to Jesus. We see this all the time. Because now we live in a culture, it's like, man, okay, I want to I live for God. I want to, you know, be in church. I want to be around community. I know my life is struggling. I'm just not willing to submit my relationship fully to him, meaning our relationship. I still want to sleep with my girlfriend. I still want to just live together. I still want to do those things. And Jesus is saying, that's, hey, that's not full surrender. It's not full surrender. He's saying, listen, you've got to completely surrender everything. Or maybe, hey, we're dating and maybe we're constantly compromising things in our relationship under the excuse of, well, I've got to test the waters because I don't want to be alone the rest of my life. You know, in that moment, we're taking control into our own hands and saying, okay, God, this is up to me. I'm taking my happiness, my security into my own hands. Or maybe you're married and you say, God, I will not submit to you whether you want me to get a divorce or not. God, you don't understand this is about my happiness and I need to do what pleases me. And God's saying, no, but I I want you to work it out. I want you to submit and surrender and walk through it. And I know it's going to be tough and I know it's going to be hard and I know there's going to be moments where it just sucks and you feel like there's no hope and you're not going to get through it. But man, just surrender. Give it over to me. See, the truth is in, in our culture today, our own happiness has gotten more important than our obedience. And this is where we trip up. This is why so many of us are still wandering around in the desert like the children of Israel. We're wandering around because we're more concerned about our happiness than we are our obedience. What we don't realize is when the obedience kicks in, then joy really does follow that. And joy is a completely different thing than happiness because joy is something that never leaves even in the darkest moments of your life. C.S. Lewis 
um, one of my favorite authors, he said that submitting to Jesus was like living in a rickety old house. Submitting to Jesus is like living in a rickety old house, and he goes on to explain it like this. He says, there's a list of things in this house that you know that need to be fixed. And so you hire Jesus to come in, and he says, okay, I'm going to start fixing up the house in it so you can live in it. And you think that Jesus just came into the rickety old house to fix the leaks. Okay, maybe he's going to patch up the roof, and he's going to fix some of the leaks so I don't get water dripping on my face while I'm sleeping. You think he's just going to level the floors and maybe repair the roof and put some paint. But then all of a sudden you show up to the house, and Jesus is there ripping a wall out. And you go, whoa, whoa, wait, I just bought this house. Why in the world are you ripping the wall out? And he rips the wall out, and then all of a sudden you see that it reveals this lovely shiplap. <laughs> You're like, oh, that makes sense. All right, yeah, that's awesome. Let's totally tear that wall down, because I love this look right here. And then he goes on to say, then he begins to tear out the carpet. You go, whoa, whoa, I just, I paid like, $100 a square foot for this carpet. I don't know how much carpet is, so if that's, I don't know. But he begins to tear out the carpet, and you're going, whoa, what are you doing? And he tears out the carpet to reveal these amazing oak hardwood floors. And you go, oh, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> so he tears down the wall. He tears out the carpet, and he starts revealing all these things. And every time he begins to remove something, you object Every time he moves down a wall, every time he tears out carpet, every time he busts through the roof, you're going, what are you doing? You're destroying the house, always to reveal something more beautiful than you thought that ever existed. And instead of just tearing down parts and walls and ripping out carpets and floors, now he begins to tear down entire sections of the house. And you don't understand, you're confused, you feel like, this, I hired the wrong guy, <laughs> This guy has no idea what he's doing. The point Lewis is making is simply this. He's not updating the house. He's building a new house. He's not into updating the house. He's into completely building a new house. Now, why would he want to build an entirely new house in the middle of surrender? He wants to build an entirely new house in the middle of surrender because he plans on living there. He plans on living there. And Jesus is not going to live in some rickety old house. See, at the end of the day, complete surrender, it doesn't make sense sometimes to our logical brains. That hurts. That's, no, God, don't tear out that, not that wall. My grandma hung her picture on that wall. Please, not that wall, God. It doesn't feel good. And all of a sudden, he begins to dim, to tear down things. We ask questions, but in the end, the surrender is worth it because it starts to make sense. The bottom line is God has a better plan for you than you have for yourself, and it starts with surrender. God has a better plan for you than you have for yourself. This is exactly what happens in Joshua. He says, listen, just, I know it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> I know marching around the walls sounds completely ridiculous. Just to let you in on, on, on my life for a little bit as a pastor and leading this church, in the past two months, I've been on the phone constantly with buildings, with contract, with people trying to secure a location, a permanent location for us. And there's times when it, I feel exactly like the children of Israel. I am back at square one. 
When we finally get a place, I'll share some of the stories that we have walked through. We have like probably about three or four times come very, 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 very close to securing a building. And every single time it's fallen through with almost the same excuse every single time. So sometimes I feel, I'm like, man, we're, we're, we're doing, God, we're growing. <laughs> Where are you at? What's going on? And God just saying, just, just keep going. Just keep praying. Just keep trusting me. I know it makes zero sense. Just keep going. And the thing that I have to lean on is that ultimately at the end of the day, God has a better plan for us. So the first basic posture that we have to have is surrender. The second one is courage. Courage. Throughout the book of Joshua, the primary thing, watch this, the primary thing that derails obedience is fear. And that is applicable to our own lives. The primary thing that holds us back from fully surrendering and fully obeying what God has called us to do is we're scared. (laughs) We're scared, right? Because if I walk into this, if I walk into this path head on, it's going to require some things that I don't like. I mean, put yourself in the place of an Israelite warrior for just a moment. You've just been circumcised, and you have to fight the most protected city on earth, and you're expecting to fight, and God says, march. (laughs) He never tells you why or how long to march. Most people miss this in the text. The only instructions that God gave was to Joshua. Joshua never gave instructions to the men. He just said, hey, look, listen, just keep marching. He never told them how long, and he never told them on the seventh day that the wall would fall. He just said, on the seventh day, this is what we're going to do. And God said he's going to take care of the rest from there. So they have no clue what's going on. You're marching, and nothing is happening. How many of you would be discouraged? I don't know about you, but like on day two, they'd be like, oh, man, I think I saw that brick move. (laughs) No, I'm seeing stuff, right? You don't see, if you don't see any progress, all of a sudden you're discouraged. Imagine for a moment these men going home to their wives each night. So, honey, what'd you do today? <laughs> don't even ask that question. So, so what did you do? And when, you're, and when your wife asks, how was your day? She's not just asking for a yes or no question, men. She wants to know details, <laughs> right? Like, give me the details about the details. Like, what happened and when that happened? How did you feel about that? (laughs) And then she wants you, like, every, once you have explained all the details and you've explained how you feel about that, she wants you to turn around and be like, so how did you feel about that? (laughs) Right? So imagine coming home and the only answer these guys have for their wife is, we marched around a wall. And she's like, that's it? Like, no detail? Like, what are the details? I mean, did you march around the wall and did you see bricks? No, like, that's it. That's all we did was march around the wall. Think about it. Day two comes around. Another march. Now, think about it at this moment. There's guards on the top of this wall. Do you think that those guards are mocking these people? You think from, just for a moment, they're walking around, they look like a bunch of idiots, like, who is this God they're serving? He's told them to walk around the walls, and they actually think that these walls are going to fall? Like, I am pretty sure, like, if I was in line, marching with the, I'd be like, God, just turn, let me cut one of them. Just one. <laughs> like, let me just, can I get one? Let me just cut one. 
right? Like a dagger, something. Here's the truth, though. They didn't see any progress until the last day. And I am positive because all of them were human. They probably asked, God, what the heck? Like, what are we doing? Like, this God, six days, like, this is looking pretty dumb. <laughs> this is looking pretty ridiculous. But here's what I want you to understand. What God was doing through them was not as important as what he wanted to do in them. God was re- preparing them for the promise they were about to receive. And God wanted them to be less focused on the outcome and more focused on the obedience. So meaning this, the outcome is God's responsibility and faithful obedience is ours. The outcome is always up to God. And if we take the outcome into our own hands, it's never going to go like we thought it would. See, as they were walking, there was nothing that happened to the walls. But the truth is, there was something happening inside of them. There was something going on inside of them. Man, on, on day five, they're starting to encourage one another. Hey, okay, God got us through the Red Sea. He got us through the desert. I know this sounds ridiculous. Let's just keep going. There's never, the thing that I love about this story is there's never a mention in the text of anybody complaining. Never a mention. Let's just, let's just trust God. Let's just keep going. Let's just keep marching. And every single day that their faith is building, something is happening on the inside of them as they continue to march. And the truth is, God doesn't really need us to accomplish anything for him. He didn't need the people. If he wanted to, he could just obliterate that wall in the first second on the first day. I mean, think about it. God spoke the world into existence. Does he really need us? He doesn't need my preaching ability. He used a donkey to talk to a man. (laughs) He certainly doesn't need a preacher. He doesn't need any of us. God doesn't need us at all. So what we do for him is not nearly as important as who we become in him. It's not about what we do. It's not about the gifting that we have and how good we can communicate and all this kind of stuff. At the end of the day, God is more interested on what is happening on the inside of you. What is your posture becoming like? How are, how are you starting to view God? How much do you trust him? Are you willing to obey him even when it sounds ridiculous? Think about it this way. What if Joshua and his army would have stopped at day six? See, many of you have not seen the promise of God fulfilled in your life because you've stopped at day six. You've marched, you've fought, you've prayed. You've obeyed, you've kept walking, and then at some point you say, it's not working. It's not working. God's not in this. I must not be doing something right. He's not for me. He's not with me. I'm out. And we see this in relationships all the time. God, I'm, I'm doing everything that I know how to do to make this work. And it's just, it's not working. It's not happening. Keep fighting. Keep praying keep reading, keep diving into community, keep trusting. God is with you. See, courage is the ability to keep going even when you don't see results. Because at the end of the day, God is faithful. The, true de- the, the, the right definition of endurance is simply this. Endurance is what courage looks like over the long haul. See, the question that we've got to answer today is where is fear keeping you from obedience? 
Where is your courage being destroyed? Where are you allowing the enemy to come in and destroy your courage? I don't know if you know this, but the most repeated command in the Bible is simply this. It's repeated 366 times. Fear not. Fear not. That's one for each day, including the leap year. (laughs) 366 times. It's the most repeated command all throughout the Bible because fear is the greatest thing that holds us back from obedience. The third thing, and I'm going to bring this to a close. I think this is the most difficult one. Number three, the faith to wait. The faith to wait. See, in Joshua, the people are ready to fight, but the question was, were they willing to wait? I mean, oftentimes we're like, all right, God, just tell me what to do. I'm ready ready to put up a fight. Let's go. Let's go. And God says, all right, you want to fight? All right, wait. (laughs) How many of you ever feel like that? Like you're praying, you're pleading God, and God's just like, just be patient. Just, just hold on. I don't know about, I feel like that in my life right now. I'm, I'm, I'm with the church, personal life, trying to sell our house. And if our house sells right now, I have no idea where we're going. <laughs> just being honest. It's like, God, okay, is there any, like, can you reveal something to us? Like, and God just, it's just, it's been the theme of my wife and I's life over and over past 10 years. God's led us down this journey in ministry. Hey, you want, you want to do anything great? All right, good. Just wait. Just hold on. Just pull back for a moment. Just, just keep waiting. Keep trusting. I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. I hate, how, how many of you hate waiting? I know it. I saw you yesterday at McDonald's standing in the line trying to get your French fries, cursing out the cashier. <laughs> We hate waiting because in that waiting, we feel like God has left us. We feel like God has departed. We feel like he's not going to come through. Doubt sets in. Fear sets in. I'll close with this example, but I remember I was coming back the first time I went to England. I'm coming back from London. And um, it was a long trip super exhausted, tired. And if you've ever done long travel across the world, when you are coming back home, the only thing that you can think about over and over and over and over again is my bed. <laughs> I just, I just want to lay, I've been sitting upright in this horrible airplane chair eating pretzels. Like I just want to sit down and sl- I want to lay down and sleep. When we're coming back from London and if you've ever flown into Atlanta, it's the worst airport in the world. But we fly in, and this plane just keeps circling. Like, you could see the runway, and you're going, dude, just land. Like, we are, here. just land, bro. And like, an hour goes by. This plane is still circling. And by this time, you're panicking because you're going, man, I'm going to miss the next flight. Then everything else is going to be delayed, and I'm not going to get home on time when I need to be. And this pilot could just land the stinking plane, and he's just circling circling. An hour goes by, an hour and a half, circling over the Atlanta airport. By this time, I'm going, oh my, this is ridiculous. Like some, somebody needs to get it together, right? I just want to go home. I just want to sleep. We end up circling for two hours. And I remember thinking that like, dude, just give me the parachute. I will jump. I see the airport right there. 
But here's the truth. Whenever God calls someone to do something big, there's always a period in your life like that, just circling. You see the promised land. You see where he wants to take you. You see where you need to be. Man, I see, I, I can see it. I see the church that God's creating. I see the, the, the church that God is calling us to be and that God wants to raise us up to be, but yet we're in a period of just, just circling, just waiting, just trusting, just believing. And the thing that God keeps bringing back to my mind over and over and over again is just, Zach, just stick to the basics. I haven't left you yet. I haven't failed you yet. I'll be like, but God, you've been late. <laughs> you've been late a few times. But the reason that we don't abort is because we know that the air traffic controller at the end of the day is looking out for us. The truth is, see, if we would have just landed when we wanted to land, we would have collided with about three or four other planes. The reason that you're circling is because the air traffic controller knows exactly what's going on down below. Like, you could just land right away, but you're going to crash too because you're going to run into two or three other planes. And see, sometimes in the middle of waiting, it doesn't make sense because you can see the promised land. And you say, God, just land me now. And God says, if I landed you right now, you, you wouldn't survive. Because right now I'm building something in you. If I landed you right now, you wouldn't have the character to back it up. If I landed you right now, you wouldn't have the obedience to back it up. If I landed you right now, you wouldn't have the faith to continue on. If I landed you right now, you wouldn't have the courage to stay in the fight. But see, when you get to the promised land, it's good, but it's, there's still a fight going on. There's still a trust. There's still an obedience that takes place. See, the hardest faith of all is the faith to wait. It's that time in your life when you can't see what God is doing in the middle of the circling. It might be the circling of sickness. It might be the circling of singleness. You're like, God, where is he? <laughs> where is she? It may be the circling of the loss of a job for the fifth or sixth time. It may be the circling of infertility. It may be the circling of finances or a promotion that you thought you were going to get. See, the city that stands in our way is not the city of Jericho. It's the city of losing faith in a God that has always been faithful. See, that's the city that stands before us now. Remember when we first came to Crowley, I had a few people say, man, why Crowley? Why, why Crowley? Like, you and your wife could plant a church anywhere in the world. Like, like go to Houston. <laughs> go to New Orleans. Like, go, to, go, go somewhere big. Go to a big city. You know, you could have thousands of people. And there's something about me, and I've always been like this, when somebody says you can't do it, you say, oh no, God's big enough to do it. He's big enough to do it. See, the thing that I love about planting a church here in this city in a smaller community is the truth is, you have the opportunity. If you're faithful, if you stick it out, it's going to be hard, but you have the opportunity. The larger this church grows, the larger the influence goes, and all of a sudden, before you know it, God has given you the keys to a city. You begin to change the landscape that it's not just a church anymore. That ultimately, it's Jesus' hands and feet taking care of people and loving people. We're seeing marriages restored and life changed. And there's so many people that sit in here today that three years ago didn't know Jesus. 
And it's so cool to see people come in here and get saved and get baptized and get into life groups and see everything that God's doing in their life. But man, maybe two years ago, they felt like, God, man, God left me. So here's what I want to do real quick as we bring this to a close. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to share some vision of where God wants to take us as a church. Where we're at right now, what God's doing. The reason I titled this Do It Again is sometimes the answer to our questions is not some new revelation. It's not that you need to see some new piece in scripture that you've never seen before. God just says, hey, do it again. Just keep praying. (laughs) Just keep walking. Just keep trusting. Just keep holding tight to my promises.